morning. We, uh, say a special welcome to our guests. Sorry you guys are here. Please, please come and find me afterwards. I'd love to meet you and get to know you guys. Um, just, I, I've noticed that my voice is, is extra struggling today, and I, I figured it out. I, I, it's, I realized that it, it's Minzy and Edwin and uh, Joseph's fault, because yesterday they made me eat pig intestines with a nice blood sauce. Um, and so, if I start losing it, I've determined that it's the pig blood fault um, that I'm losing my voice. So, I blame them. Um, Minzy, you can come finish my sermon if I lose it. Um, but, with that said, new experiences. It's, it's good. Good things. Um, I need a cheeseburger, um, but I was glad to do it. Uh, we are in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23 uh, this morning. Mark 7, 14 through 23. Uh, our passage this morning is a continuation from our passage um, last week. Um, last time, we saw that uh, we are the Pharisees in the story. All right, that, that's the point. We're all the Pharisees. We all do what the Pharisees do. Um, we all take something that is good and try to make that something God. Right? So for the Pharisees, we saw that it was their tradition. Right? They had elevated their, their own man-made rules to the level of God's commandments. And as we saw, every single one of us does this as well. We all have what the Bible calls idols. Right? We are all idolaters. Now, when we think idols, right, we, we tend to think tiny little gold statues that, that people bow down to and worship. Um, but again, that's not primarily what we're talking about here when we talk about idols. All right? Um, that is idolatry, but it's not the form that people in modern-day America struggle with. All right? Our form of idolatry is much more subtle and much more dangerous because we don't even know that what we're doing is idolatry. All right? The Bible says that every single one of us has something that we use and that, that, that serves as our functional God. All right? We all have something that we so cling to and that we so emphasize and depend on that it basically becomes our God. Right? We, we tend to do this with all kinds of things, like money, uh, we work and we slave and we kill ourselves, like we just have a little bit more money, if I can just get that raise, then I'll be alright. We do this with our families, we, we worship them, we find our identities and our children, um, we do this with sex and with pleasure, whatever it is, whatever that thing is, we, we seek it at all costs, that one thing that we must have to be happy. We all do this with something, right? We all have something that we think that we cannot live without. We all have something that we cling to to give our lives meaning, right? That we strive and that we sacrifice for. So I want you to be thinking, right, throughout this sermon, throughout this text, what that one thing is for you. But the question that I want to raise is, is why, right? Why do we do this? Right? There's, there's got to be a reason and an explanation for why every one of us does this. And that's what I want to look at this morning. We do this because we think it is a solution to a problem that we all recognize. So this morning we're going to do two simple things. I want to look simply at the problem and then we're going to look at the solution. Right? But within those two categories, I want to look at what we think the problem is compared to what Jesus says the problem is. And then I want to look at what we think the solution is compared to what Jesus says the solution is. All right, so look there in your Bibles at Mark 7, 14 through 23. Uh, in your few Bibles, it's on page 843 if you want to follow along. This is God's Word. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. 
And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Right, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time. And we thank you for giving us your perfect word. And we thank you for including in it passages like this that unsettle us and that disturb us and that we don't particularly like. So, Father, right now I pray that you would soften our hearts, that your spirit would work in us, that you would write these truths on our heart, Father, that you would convict us of our sin and of our, and our need for you. And just, just display Christ um, through this message. Um, and I pray that you would get all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, let's start with the problem, right? What cannot be denied by anyone is that there is a problem, okay? Something's not right. The, the world is not right. And if you're honest with yourself, right, you know that you're not right, right? There's something wrong with you personally. And this is proven by the fact that we all experience guilt, right? We all carry around some sort of burden or weight that weighs us down, right? We all kind of have something, something that we've done in our past that, that haunts us, right? You just can't quite let it go or forget it. You think that you have, but then it just kind of randomly pops up a year or two later and it drags you down again, right? This, this feeling, this, this guilt is a universal part of human nature, right? And the Pharisees would explain that feeling with the word unclean, right? That's what we talked about last week. Remember how important the distinction between clean and unclean was to, to Judaism 2,000 years ago. And that's why they created and elevated these, these traditions, these rules and these regulations that they used to avoid uncleanness and to purify themselves. And this is what we all do, though we do it using very different terms. Right? We don't think today in terms of being clean or unclean or fixing that problem with rituals. We think in terms of guilt in terms of not being good enough or not feeling worthy or insecurity or depression or unfulfilled desires, whatever you want to call it, right? But it's all really the same thing. So we all know that there is a problem, right? So I want us to see what we first think that problem is, right? We all know something is wrong, but we all get what that something is, right? The prevailing view today, just go out on the street, talk to anyone, um, go read a philosophy book, go talk to someone from another religion, and the prevailing view that you'll find today is that men and women are basically good, right? That's kind of just inherently, we're pretty good people, right? Left to ourselves, right? If uncorrupted by social pressures and, and poverty and big government and all these things, then we're all inherently good. Yeah, okay, sometimes we occasionally slip up, sometimes we do the occasional bad thing, but all in all, we're pretty good people. Right? We just need a little more education, a little bit more government assistance, or whatever it is to fix these kind of minor issues that we have. Here's what it boils down to. We think our problem, and we think it's not that big of a deal, we think our problem are the bad things that we occasionally do. Right? We're mostly good people who sometimes do bad things. 
But we always somehow manage to blame those bad things on someone or someone else, right? A man who, who's addicted to pornography blames it on his wife. Oh, she's, she's not fulfilling me. She, she drove me here, right? A woman cheating on her taxes says, oh, it's the government's fault. They don't use my money right, so I don't need to, to report my taxes correctly, right? When there's a shooting in a school somewhere in the country, right? Go read the news. Everyone's trying to figure out what to blame it on. Well, it's video games or it's lack of education or he was being bullied. Whatever it is, if there's some sort of excuse, um, some way that we try and blame the bad things that we do on external sources. And this is what we see the Pharisees doing in our text. Look at the first part of 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. He says it again in the second half of 18 and 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? So, so do you see what Jesus is saying here, right? He is attacking the Pharisees' understanding of the problem. The Pharisees think, remember, they think it is the unclean things out there that then come in and make them unclean, right? That's why we saw last week them making such a big fuss about washing hands and ritual purity and all these random rules and regulations that they did, right? Because they assumed that uncleanness comes from outside in, right? That their problem is something um, that they caught from someone or something else, that it is something that happened to them, right? So we all think that our problem is something out there, right? That's what we think it is, but let's look and see what the Bible says that it really is. And there is a major difference, right? So, so look back at the text at verse 15. He rejects what we and the Pharisees think the problem is, that it's something out there that makes us unclean. And then he says, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Then jump down to the middle of 18. Jesus, he continues, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And notice, by the way, that this terrible list of things that he is describing the people with, he's not talking to the Pharisees at this point. He's talking to the disciples right here when, when he describes their hearts. And so there's the difference, all right? We think the problem is out there. Jesus says the problem is in here, right? Jesus says we're the problem. He says the problem is our heart, right? We think that we're mostly good people who sometimes do bad things. Jesus says we are bad people who do bad things because it is our nature, because our hearts are bad. The world says we are what we do. Jesus says we do what we are, right? The problem is the heart. Now let's pause here and clear up a common misconception before we kind of move on into what he's saying. Let's make sure, this seems like common sense, but I think it's not. Let's make sure we actually know what the heart is, right? He says the problem is the heart, right? That's where all the bad stuff that defiles us comes from. But this can be a little confusing for us today because we use the word heart very differently than the Bible uses the word heart. All right? Think about this. When we use the word heart, what do we usually mean? Right? We use it to generally refer to kind of emotions or our feelings. Right? I have this feeling in my heart about something. Right? So, and then we use mind to refer to thinking and reasoning. 
right? And we set the two up kind of in opposition to each other, right? It's kind of mind versus heart, right? Uh, she's just, she's too much of a thinker. She's too cold and logical. She only uses her head. Or uh, he just follows his heart. He's too driven by his emotions. Some people think the head is superior. Some people think the heart is superior. But the point is that we kind of treat them as these kind of two different, like independently operating parts of us, right? And we often act like they are in opposition to each other. Have you ever heard the cliche, the longest journey a man must make is the 18 inches from his head to his heart, right? I have never understood what that means. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't understand that at all. And what do you do if, like, you're really tall or really short? Like, the longest distance between my daughter's head and heart is, like, four inches, I think, because, because she's tiny. But the point is, what does that mean? Like, is there this, this knowledge here, and we've got to somehow get the knowledge kind of down here? Or uh, I don't get it. Or you've heard someone talk about, right, the distinction between head knowledge versus heart knowledge. Oh, he's just got a lot of head knowledge, but he just needs to transfer it down and, and get some heart knowledge, right? Again, thing up here in our heads, there's one knowledge, or there's this other thing down here at our heart. It's got its other kind of knowledge. But again, here we go. The, the problem is that these simply aren't biblical categories, right? And we know this because we know if you had a basic biology course, right, you know that your heart is an organ that pumps blood, right? There's not this, like, second consciousness or something that's going on down here in this part of you. This, it pumps blood, right? That's, that's what the heart does. But we still use the word heart to refer to feelings and emotions and head or mind to refer to knowledge or thinking as, as two different things. But the Bible doesn't do this, right? The Bible uses the word heart to refer to both of these things, right? It basically uses the word heart and mind interchangeably throughout Scripture. If you go pay attention, it'll use both for each other all over the place. For example, Luke 9.47 talks about all the thinking and the reasoning that we do. Where? In our hearts. Right? Genesis 6.5 talks about all the thoughts of our heart. Proverbs 16.1 talks about all the plans that we make inside of our heart. Job 36.5 talks about where we understand things and we, we, we understand in our hearts. Right, so in Scripture, the heart thinks and knows and plans and wills and understands and feels and all of these things. Right? In Hebrew, the same word for heart is translated as heart sometimes, and in other passages, it's translated as mind. Because both things are contained in the same Hebrew word. Right? It means both. So in Scripture, heart doesn't mean emotions or feelings. Right? It means our self. Right? It means our inner mind. It, it includes our conscience, our will, our desires, our affections. It thinks and wills and feels. The heart is who we are down to our core. Right? The heart is our inner being. It is the center of all the operations of life. And it is the center of all of our spiritual activity. Right? Thus, in Scripture, heart, mind, soul, they're used kind of interchangeably to all refer to the same thing. Right? So heart means us, who we are. So there is no mind versus heart. There is no head knowledge versus heart knowledge. There's not a long distance between the head and the heart, right? Because it's all contained in the same place. So what do you do when you feel like you have all of this information in your head and you don't feel it or however you want to call it, whatever that means? The problem is that you don't have heart knowledge. The problem is that you don't have faith, right? Listen to Hebrews 4.2. 
Um, it says, For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. All right, same good news, same knowledge to two groups of people, but this one did not benefit them, he says, because they were not united by faith. All right, so the difference between the two groups, same knowledge, is that one united it to faith and one didn't. All right, and this brings us back to our acronym for faith that I've been emphasizing over and over and over again. All right? Three parts to biblical faith. Remember, it is K-A-T, knowledge, assent, and trust. Right? Faith consists of first knowledge. Right, You have to have some sort of acquaintance with the content of the gospel. You have to know something about Jesus before you can believe in Jesus. Right? You can't believe in something that you know nothing about. Right? So there's got to be the knowledge. Right? Then the A is the assent. Uh, which just means to, to agree, right? You, you have this knowledge, you assent to it. You agree that it is true, right? That, that's the second letter. That's the A, right? But then you also have to have the T, right? The T is the, the trust, knowledge, assent. And then you have a personal trust or reliance on the grace of the Father, Son, and the Spirit for your salvation, you cannot just have some knowledge about something and think that it is true, right? You have to act on it. You have to have faith. You have to trust in it. So it's not about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. It's about knowledge with or knowledge without faith, without the trust, right? Many of you know about Jesus. You understand the truths of the gospel, right? You even believe that those things are true. But you have not taken the step of personally trusting and resting in those things for your salvation. Right? So, so my recommendation is that we leave these kind of unbiblical categories of head versus heart knowledge. And let's talk about faith. Right? Let's talk about these things as the Bible talks about them. Right? Knowledge by itself is worthless. Right? But knowledge combined by God's grace with trust is saving. So again, our goal is to always align what we believe with what the Bible says. Right? That, that's our goal, is to speak as the Bible speaks. And when the Bible uses the term a heart, right, it refers to our whole being, including our feeling and our thinking. The heart is who we are down to our very core. Right? It is yourself. It is what identifies you. And it is that fact that makes Jesus' words here in our passage so alarming. Right? It is not like just your, your feelings are off, not heart as we use it. It is our whole being, who we are down to our very core, that is wicked and evil, Jesus says. Right? And in Scripture, this is what is referred to as our sin nature. Right? We are all of us sinners by nature and by choice. And this is just all over Scripture, right? It is just so clear that it is impossible to deny. Let me read you just a few verses. All right, Jeremiah 17, 9. says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Genesis, Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. Psalm 51.5, which we just read, says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.10-12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. Had enough, right? 
I could give you a lot more because it is all over Scripture, right? Not the most encouraging, positive collection of verses, is it? It's not exactly a warm, uplifting, be your best you, your, your best life now, Joel Osteen kind of message, is it? No, but it is a biblical message. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in our passage. It is our hearts that are the problem. We're not good people who sometimes do bad things. We are bad people, right? And this is what is referred to in theology as total depravity, right? Let me explain the term. Don't freak out about it, all right? Listen to what our articles of faith say about sin and about our nature, right? This is coming from um, our articles. It says, Adam fell from his sinless and happy state, and all men sinned in him as the representative of mankind in consequence of which all men are totally depraved, are partakers of Adam's fallen nature, are sinners by nature and by conduct, and are therefore under just condemnation without defense or excuse. I didn't write that. Somebody wrote that 70 or 80 years ago. Um, and it says that all men are depraved totally by, and are sinners by nature and by choice. Right? That's you and that's me. Right? And this is the clear teaching of the Bible, and it is the historic belief of this church. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we possibly can be, right? Every one of you in here are obviously a better person than Hitler, right? But it means that the extent of sin's effect on us is total, right? Sin's effect touches every part of our heart, of our being. It affects our thinking, our feeling, and our choosing. That is total depravity. But for some reason, people are offended by this doctrine, right? They think it's just too negative of a picture of humanity. Go talk to someone out on the street, a non-Christian, like, oh, no, you know, we're, we're pretty good people, right? We're just trying so hard to convince themselves that, that they're better than that, right? That, that man is basically good, right? But it just won't work. Right? Just read the newspaper, flip on the news, or just look around. Right? Total depravity is a man just a few miles from here, last week in Brooklyn, walking into an apartment and stabbing a wife, a woman and her four children to death. Total depravity is a guy walking into a school just about two hours north of here and mowing down little children. Right? Total depravity is the over one million helpless children that will be murdered in their mother's wombs this year alone in the United States. That is about 50 million children since 1973, the year of, of Roe versus Wade, right? And that's just in this country. And the state with the most of those abortions a year, this state, your state, the state that we live. Worldwide, since 1980, in just over 30 years, over 1 billion babies have been murdered before they were born. That is total depravity. Right? And what Jesus says here is that each one of us has the potential for such evil acts inside of our hearts. Murder is on that list, right? The list that he says, right? It all comes from within our hearts. But that's not all that total depravity is. Don't be sitting there starting to feel pretty good thinking, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't had an abortion, so I'm all right. No, because total depravity is a part of all of us. Total depravity is you refusing to forgive your parents for something that they did to you many years ago. It is holding on to the hatred and the bitterness for the great wrong done to you by someone in the past. It is your persistent lying or exaggerating the truth or hiding the truth. It is your failure to be generous and give of your money. It is your selfishness and your desire to look out for numero uno. 
right? Total depravity manifests itself in many different ways, but it's there in all of us. You cannot deny it. Just look at the broken world around you. Just take an honest look at your own heart, right? I, I can see it in mine when I'm honest with myself. I can see my, my sin nature raging against the new creation, God's work in my heart. Go read Romans 7 where Paul just talks about this, this battle, this, this wrestling this, that's going on within him, right? Because we are all sinners, right? This is a universal thing that affects all of us. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this passage. That is the state of our hearts, right? Totally depraved. Just go look at the list of things that he uses to describe it. But that's not all. Not done yet. Right? When we talk about total depravity in theology, right, a logical correlation to total depravity is what is also called total inability. Right? If this, then this. If our hearts are as wicked and depraved and fallen and separated from God as the Bible says, right, then it also follows that we can't do anything about that problem on our own. We cannot save ourselves. And that is just core, basic Christian teaching. You cannot save yourself. Right, where do we see this idea in Scripture? Everywhere. But I'll give you a few verses again. Matthew 7, 18 says, A diseased tree, a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Right? 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. John 14, 17 talks about the Holy Spirit that the world cannot receive. John 6, 44 says, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless what? Unless the Father draws him. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, for the Son, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? You see all those does-nots and cannots. That is total depravity. That is total inability. Our situation is so bad, we are so sinful and separated far from God that we cannot remedy the situation for ourselves. Which obviously implies the, the need for someone to step in and remedy the situation for us. Right? And that's what we're going to get to in a second. Total depravity, all right? This is what is wrapped up in Jesus' description of our hearts here in Mark 7. Right? It's not positive news, right? It's not super encouraging, right? But you cannot properly understand the good news until you understand the bad news. Right? And the bad news is pretty bad, right? Because the problem is our heart, our self, our person. The problem is us. So... Whenever there's a problem, and there's clearly a problem, we look for a solution, right? And the scripture tells us that we are unable to do anything about the problem on our own. Man, we still try really hard to fix the problem. And this is what we talked about last week, so we won't spend a ton of time here, but, but I want to remind you real quick what, what we covered. The Pharisees' concern with uncleanness or defilement, right? They, that's what they were concerned with, and they thought that all that stuff, remember, came from the outside, so they go to these great lengths to, present, to prevent that unclean stuff outside from getting in. Right? So they have all these rules and regulations and ceremonies and, and washings to protect them from the uncleanness out there. Right? And as I said, we don't use that same terminology today, but we all do the exact same thing. Right? We all feel guilt and insecurity, and we all feel inside that something is wrong. 
So we do what the Pharisees do. We do whatever we can to keep the bad, unclean stuff out there from getting in here. Right? Christians, right? especially fundamentalists, are great at this. Right? They do this with, with their rules. Right? There's all these lists of things that you have to do to be a Christian, to keep all the bad stuff out there from getting in here. No movies, no secular music, no dancing, whatever it is that could be bad. No rules, rules against it so it won't defile you. But again, notice that they think the bad stuff's out there, that we're all right in here, so we've got to keep the bad out. Right? Other religions do this too. Muslims have all these food laws and, and ritual, ritual washings every time before they pray. Women wear, wear the burqas. And all of these things are our attempts, these are rules to keep the unclean out there from getting in. Right? And non-Christians do this as well. Right? Remember, they all find something that they cling to, like a money or job or sex or relationships or comfort or whatever it is. They come up with something that they try to use to solve the problem of their guilt and insecurity. Man, if I can just get this promotion or, or this raise, if I can just get this girl, then everything will be okay. Right? Then I'll no longer feel the way that I do. Then I'll be okay, but it never works. Right? They get that one thing, and then they realize that they're just as miserable as they were before. We all feel unclean, or whatever the word is, whatever you want to call it. And we all come up with some sort of strategy to deal with the problem, to, to purify ourselves, to, to ease our guilt, to, to find some sort of identity or fulfillment. We all work and strive to be good enough and prove our self-worth. We're all trying to save ourselves in one way or another. But notice the relationship between what we think the problem is and what we try and make the solution. Right? We think If we think the problem is something out there, Right? Then we're going to come up with a solution that deals with the things out there. Dealing with the surface things. Right? Building up these walls that will protect us from the bad out there. Right? But if your starting point is wrong, right? if you diagnose the problem incorrectly from the beginning, then, there, then your solution is going to be wrong as well. And that is why understanding total depravity is so critical to understanding the gospel. Because if we think that we're pretty good people, just with kind of some minor little problems out there, then the solution won't need to be that dramatic. But if we understand total depravity, if we understand the condition of our hearts, how separated from God that we are, and how there is no hope um, apart from Him, how there's nothing that we can do about it, and then and only then will we begin to understand just how amazing God's solution is. Right? If you get total depravity wrong, your gospel is going to be weak and watered down. Right? Because a small problem only needs a small solution. But if you understand your problem, if you understand the magnitude of the state of your heart and your separation from God and what that means for eternity, if you kind of get a picture of your helplessness, right, you really start to understand the significance of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. You've got to understand the bad news before you can properly understand the good news. Once you understand your problem and understand that your solution has not and cannot work, then and only then will you start to appreciate God's solution. Since your problem is your heart, the solution has to deal with your heart. Right? None of our solutions do that. 
All of our solutions deal only with surface level stuff, with our behaviors. Right? That's why every single one of us has been frustrated at some point in time when we've tried to stop some bad behavior, right? You mess up, you, you slip up again, you're like, all right, well, this is it. I'm going to draw up all of my resolve. This is it. I'm planting my flag. I promise this is going to be the last time. I'm never going to do this again. But then what happens every single time, right? Before you know it, you're back doing the exact same thing. Why? Because you didn't address the real problem. You didn't deal with the heart. Because we are unable to deal with a heart on our own. You cannot do it. And that is what makes grace so amazing. It is not something that you do. It is something that God does for you. It is a gift. right? That grace is a gift. Something that He gives to us. right? If um, you could do it, if you could contribute anything to your own salvation, if you could just, just choose God and, and, and I'm saved, right? then it wouldn't be all that great. Because anyone can do it of their own power. But grace is amazing because God steps in, right? In spite of our great sin and wickedness. In spite of our separation from Him, He steps in and comes and offers the only solution that works. Our hearts are wicked, Jesus says. Ephesians 2.1 says that our hearts are dead, right? So what does God do? What is the solution to a sick, dead heart? It is a new heart. And that's exactly what God does. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, God says, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The only solution that works is a new heart. It is not about your rules or your behaviors or the outward things that we obsess over. It is about the heart. In Romans 2.29, Paul is explaining that being part of the people of God, or being saved in other words, it's not about physical descent. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So being part of God's people, being saved, is about the heart, right? It's not your ethnicity. It's not how moral you are that saves you. It's the condition of your heart. Is it dead or is it alive? Is it stone or is it flesh? Is it old or is it new? In 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The solution is a new heart, a new creation, a, a new birth. And think about birth, right? Think about how much Emma contributed to her birth process, right? Nothing, right? This is, this is not something. You cannot birth yourself. It is not something that we can do on our own power. It's something that we need God to come in and do for us. Think about it like a physical heart transplant. How about that? It, it's amazing what they can do with medicine these days. What happens if you get older and you're sick, your heart is sick, and it, it is failing, it, it is dying? Right? You can take medication, you can exercise and eat healthy, you can try and do all of these things, but there comes a point that if your heart is sick enough, that there's nothing that you can do to fix it. Right? You need a new heart. So what do you do about getting and putting in a new heart? 
Nothing. The doctor puts you on a list. The doctor finds you a heart. He brings you in. He lays you down on a table. He knocks you out. You're unconscious on a table. He breaks open your chest. He takes out your old dying heart and he places in a new healthy living heart. Right? You cannot fix your own physical heart. You need a healthy outside source to come in and fix that heart for you. And that's exactly what God does for us in giving us a new spiritual heart. But the analogy isn't perfect because we're not just sick and dying and in need of a heart soon, right? Ephesians 2.1 again says that our hearts are already dead, right? We are spiritually dead. So God comes in, he removes the dead heart of stone and he gives us by his grace a new heart of flesh. He does the work for us. You cannot fix your heart. You cannot save yourself. So quit trying. You are not good enough to figure this out on your own. Remember, Paul says over and over again, those in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus says we cannot come to God unless what? Unless God takes the initiative. Unless God draws us. That's the solution. God calls us. He gives us a new heart. He grants us by His grace the ability to repent and have faith. He acts first. We act in response. And that is simply what 1 John 4, 19 says. If you have any problem with anything that I've said, take it up with 1 John 4, 19. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. That is the solution. God loving us first. God taking the initiative. God giving us a new heart so that we are then free and able to respond to him in gratitude. He acts First, we act in response. Right? That's just basic, core stuff. He takes the initiative. We respond. We love because he first loved us. That's what grace is. It is God doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves. If we could do it for ourselves, it wouldn't be that amazing. Right? And this is not something that we deserve either. We can't do it. We don't deserve it. But he does it anyways. And that's why it's amazing. The problem is not outside, it's inside. Right? The problem is that my heart was dead. Thus all of my solutions that only dealt with the outside, all of my rules and rituals, they never worked. Only God's solution, giving me a new heart, could solve the problem. And how is he able to do that? He's able to do that because of Jesus Christ. Look again at that list in verse 21 and 22. These things that characterize our hearts, evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slender, pride, foolishness. That's how God sees us when he looks on our hearts. And listen, you'll hear someone say sometimes, oh, God can do whatever he wants. I understand the notion of that phrase, but it's simply not true, right? God can't sin, um, he cannot lie, uh, and he actually cannot simply snap his fingers and magically say, oh, you know, all those terrible, bad, sinful things, all those crimes, nah, no big deal, uh, forgotten, don't, don't worry about those. No, God is holy, and he is just, so he must punish sin. But the gospel is that instead of punishing us for our sin, he punishes Jesus for our sin. He punishes Jesus in our place. Jesus is our substitute. So Jesus takes your place. He takes your sin and uncleanness and he gives you his perfect record and purity. Now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. 
Jesus' record becomes yours. He gives you a new heart and He makes you a new creation. All of that guilt and uncertainty and dissatisfaction, it's wiped away at the cross. Jesus gives you all of those things by reconciling you back to God. And He is the only one that can actually fulfill you. It is the perfect solution. It is grace. It is the gospel, right? Every other religion. And even how some people understand Christianity amounts to nothing more than you save yourself. If your salvation depends on something that you do, whether it is being, you being good enough or you figuring it out and choosing God, then you get the credit for your salvation. Right? But the Bible is clear that that's not possible. Our hearts are too dead to do anything to merit salvation. But God gracefully steps in and saves us anyways. He comes in and He does the work and He gets all the glory. It really hit me as we were singing this. I didn't even notice it in the first service. But the third verse of Rock of Ages is so perfect for what we're talking about. He, said, he says, nothing in my hand I bring. All right, we have nothing to offer God to earn this. We come into this agreement bringing nothing. To the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We bring nothing. We are helpless. If we are not made new, if we are not given a new heart, if we are not washed, we die. That is what we're talking about here in this passage. The only solution to your problem is a new heart. And the first step to that is understanding the state of your old heart of understanding your total depravity, of realizing that you cannot save yourself and thus then throwing yourself at the foot of the cross. You confess your sins. You, you cry out to God. You confess your helplessness and then you pray to Him asking you to grant you faith and repentance. And then, and then you, you be amazed by the glory of the gospel. Listen, I don't send you out here every week with a list of things to do on purpose. Right? Because the rules and the regulations and the me telling you all these things that you need to do to be a Christian, they cannot and they will not change you. Right? Our goal up here every Sunday is to so display Christ, to so magnify the love of God displayed to us in the gospel. That, that, that understanding, that encounter with His goodness and His grace just starts to soften your heart. It starts to, to change you. That's how God changes us. It's not through rules. It's not through regulations. It's, it's through love and grace and the beauty of the gospel. Right? So, so just throw yourself at the gospel every single day. It, it is how God saves us. Your rules won't do it. His love and grace will. Jesus Christ is the only solution to our problem. Trust not in yourself, but in Him. Let's, let's turn to Him in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for this passage. We thank you for this hard truth. Um, we confess our resistance to it. Father, we confess our tendency to, to think more highly of ourselves than we should. I confess my pride and my arrogance to think I've got things figured out and that I'm, that I'm pretty all right. Father, you, you tell us clearly in this passage that we're not. So we, we come to you, as the, as the um, hymn says, we, we come to you with nothing in our hands. Father, we come to you helpless. We come to you clinging the cross. 
And we just ask that you would work in our hearts, Father, that you would cleanse us, that you would just show us Jesus Christ and his great glory and majesty, and that you would overwhelm our hearts um, with your love, Father. But I just pray that we would understand the bad news so that we can better understand and appreciate and value the good news, because it is such good news. Father, we thank you that there is life in the cross. We thank you that there is victory at the cross. We thank you that there is a relationship with you purchased for us at the cross of Christ. Father, we could not save ourselves, but you have saved us in spite of ourselves. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your great mercy and love. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.